You're listening to a sermon podcast from Agape Baptist Church, recorded live from our Sunday service. Good morning, church. Today's scripture reading is taken from Acts chapter 9, <coughs> verses 3 to 6, 10 to 12, and verse 15. Verse 3. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Verse 10. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. At the, at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. Verse 15. But the, but the Lord said to him, Go, for he is chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Waiwa. A very good morning, everyone. The Lord bless you. Now, I'm sure we all want to know uh, how much has been collected for our gift to the king, uh, but I'll only update the amount next Sunday once the collection is finished. Now, today is again the last day to give to the GTTK collection. So, uh, you know, this will all go towards missions and the church planting fund. So if you'd still like to give today, it's the final day to do so. All right, just a reminder about that. Now, I'm really excited to start a new series. Uh, this series is on evangelism and on our mission to the lost everywhere. And it's such a privilege uh, that we get to begin this series by praying for a special group of people. Now, before COVID hit, we were sending out mission teams about two times a year. Then when COVID hit, everything kind of stopped and not much happened in terms of uh, overseas missions. I think if I'm not wrong, the last mission teams we sent uh, was, uh, I mean, before COVID was in uh, June 2019. And these was a team from the Rays ministry, the youth ministry uh, to Manila. But finally, in November last year, after a three and a half year pause, we were able to send a team once again, uh, this time to East Timor. This week, We'll be sending out yet another missions team, uh, but this time to Uttaradit in Thailand. And so, can I get this? Just put our hands together, and as we welcome the mission trippers uh, to the front, onto the stage. Yes, please. Yes, they are very shy. Uh, 
some of them were telling me this is their first time stepping onto the stage at Agape. Now, if you take a look at the slide on the screen, which should be coming up anytime now, slide on the screen. Yes, thank you. So this is the full team, right? Not everybody is uh, able to be here on stage today. Now, if you look at the slide, you realize that by no means is this the youngest missions team that we've ever sent, right? So, but I think this is what it means for Agape to be an every member church uh, where missions is not restricted to just the young, uh, where we are all called to live missionally uh, regardless of age. So this is the first time we are sending a team to uh, Uttaradit, and uh, they're going to be serving alongside Son and Yulian. Uh, if you remember, we prayed for Son and Yulian uh, late last year, and we're supporting them as missionaries in Chiang Mai. So together with Son and Yulian, this team will be doing a number of things. So they'll be ministering at a local church, they'll be visiting families, uh, they'll be doing a program at a local primary school, which is also how a local pastor there is planning to uh, plant a new church in the community, and they'll be helping at a university outreach event where they'll be sharing their testimonies. So it sounds like there's going to be a, a pretty fruitful uh, trip for them, but before they leave, we want to pray for them. Okay, so I want to invite you, if you're comfortable, would you stretch out your hands towards them? Uh, let's pray. Father, we just want to thank you, Lord, for placing this desire on their hearts to go and to serve even the nations beyond Singapore. Lord, we want to ask firstly for their protection. Lord, as they fly, uh, as they travel day to day, uh, Lord, uh, their, their finances that they're bringing with them, uh, their health, Lord, all of these things, would you protect them? Would you protect the peace, Lord, the stability, the unity within this team uh, as they share this sense of purpose for being there? Lord, would you also protect the sanctity of the name of Jesus Christ, Lord? That even through this team, Lord, whether they are serving or whether just in their interactions with one another, Lord, would Jesus, would your name be glorified, Lord? Father, we ask also that their presence there would be such an encouragement to Son and Yulian and also the other kingdom workers who are there at Uttaradit, Lord. We ask that they would be useful, Lord, to your kingdom. Lord, that their giftings, their experiences, Lord, their practical wisdom, Lord, their walk with you, all these things would impact their service, would impact their testimonies, Lord, and all these things would bring flourishing, Lord, to the people there. And we ask that you bring them back safely as well with stories to tell, uh, Lord, of your goodness, of your power, of your salvation. And so we pray all these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people say, amen. Now, let's put our hands together once more and just encourage them. Thank you so much. Wonderful. So uh, this year, you know, we've been talking about what it means to be a royal priesthood, what it means to be shining for Christ. And as a church, we want to grow in our outreach, especially to those who do not know Jesus. Now, I love how God, again, arranges things because I was intending to preach uh, out of the book of Acts, right? This is actually our fourth season in the book of Acts. And it just so happens that these next few chapters, chapters 9 to 11, they are about how the Great Commission, right, that evangelistic mission of the church, how that really takes off uh, in the book of Acts. So what I'm praying is that as we take our time through these three chapters, that we would begin to catch, to absorb, to integrate the priority and passion for evangelism that the early church had. So this morning, we begin with Saul's conversion on the road to Damascus. And what I want to do is I'm going to walk us through the story before I draw out four lessons for us. Okay? 
I want to begin with a personal story. So when I was in school, I had a classmate who was super antagonistic towards the Christian faith, right? He would mock everything about Christianity, right? Nothing was off limits to him. Nothing was sacred to him. But nevertheless, we were still quite good friends. And after we graduated, we still kept in touch here and there. And then a couple of years ago, I attended his wedding. And at the wedding, I found out that he had become a Christian. And me and my classmates, right, even those who were not Christians, we were all just shocked, right? We couldn't just under, we couldn't understand. We couldn't believe that this guy who was so anti-Christian, who was so irreverent, this guy became the very thing that he despised. And we couldn't believe it. Now, I'm sure that we can all relate, right? We all have people like that in our lives who just, we just feel like they are too far from God, right? Their hearts are too hardened against Christ. And in today's passage, Saul is the epitome of that kind of person. He is someone who is so far from Christ, uh, whose heart is so hardened against God, right? In fact, Saul had a reputation, not just for mocking Christians, but for persecuting them. Saul was like a top lieutenant of the Chinese Communist Party or the North Korean secret police. He was banging down doors, arresting Christians, men, women, young, old. It didn't matter to him. He was dragging them to court. He was throwing them into prison. And then we come to Acts chapter 9, and we are told uh, in verse 1 and 2, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any Christians belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So if you knew Saul personally back then, no, there would have been two things that stood out about him. The first thing, number one, would be that Saul hates Christians, right? It's not just that Saul has a pity for these misguided Christians, or Saul, you know, just wanted to convert these Christians to the Jewish faith. Saul is a man who hates Christianity, right? Saul's warning to Christians is very simple. Stop it, or I will murder you, right? Very simple. Saul would rather have Christians killed than let them continue practicing their faith. So that's the first thing. Saul hates Christians. This, uh, sorry, that's the first thing. The second thing is that Saul is a super zealous guy, right? He's like a bulldog. When he, when he bites onto something, he's not going to let go. So we read in the verses just now that Saul's jurisdiction is in Jerusalem, right? That's where he's based. That's where he has his authority. That's where he's persecuting the Christians, But then Saul found out that some Christians had run away from Jerusalem and they had fled to Damascus. And now, you know, if he was some other man, he would have just been contented, right? He just pat himself on the back and say, well done. You know, I chased them all out. You know, uh, Jerusalem is free of these Christian pests. He would have done that. But Saul is a different man. Those who escaped are still his problem. So now he's he's on the way to Damascus He's got arrest warrants, he's got letters uh, from his superiors, and he's on a mission to find every last one of these Christian heretics. So these two things about Saul, his, his hatred for Christians and his zeal, these are a fatal combination because they make Saul an exterminator. He has zero pity, he's willing to kill, and he has 100% persistence about him. Saul was a terrifying reality 
for the Christians at that time. But as Saul is on the road to Damascus and he's got this group of men with him, suddenly a light shines upon them. In Acts 22, we are told that this happened at noon, right? So the sun is already at its highest, it's at its brightest. But there was yet another brighter light that shone upon them. And this light was such an assault on the senses that Saul fell to the ground. And later what we find out is that this light was actually Jesus' spiritual presence. Right? We are told in verse 17, a man named Ananias, he would say to Saul, uh, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road. Right? And then later in verse 27, but Barnabas took Saul and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road Saul had seen the Lord who spoke to him. So to Saul, this was not just an unusually powerfully bright light. Right? Within this light, Saul saw Jesus. And then Saul hears a voice calling out to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul doesn't quite recognize whose voice that is, but he can tell that it belongs to someone divine. And so Saul responds saying, who are you, Lord? And the voice replies, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now we cannot imagine how much of a shock this revelation was to Saul. That one statement that Jesus made, it turned his whole world upside down. From his religious convictions, to his moral compass, to his identity as a servant of God, you know, what he thought was true, he found out is true no longer. What he thought was right, he found out is right no longer. And what he was so sure of before, now he's no longer sure anymore. Everything has been turned upside down. And the brightness of that light, it blinded Saul, but the shock of that one statement, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, that left Saul three days without appetite for food and drink. Now, after this incident, Jesus visits another man named Ananias through a vision, and he commands Ananias to find Saul to lay hands on him. After some hesitation, Ananias obeys. And when Ananias did the things that was commanded of him, a few things happened. The first thing, the obvious thing, was that something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and Saul could see again. The less visible thing was that Saul was also filled with the Holy Spirit. But this becomes very obvious when Saul decides to get baptized. And it does look like upon being baptized, Saul finally finds that closure for his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, and he finally eats and his strength returns. Now, this is just a quick retelling of Saul's conversion story, right? And although it seems like this is a story about Saul, this is actually a story about God, right? I don't bring to our attention four things that Saul uh, Saul's encounter illuminates about God, about God's nature, about how he does things. So the illuminating light of Jesus, you know, it both blinded Saul, and yet at the same time, it revealed the truth to Saul. And in the same way, this passage illuminates two revelations about God, and at the same time, two mysteries about God. So let's begin with revelation number one, God's power in evangelism. Now, we see God's power when we consider the timing of Saul's encounter with Jesus. 
Saul was at the height of his rebellion. He had already created this uproar in Jerusalem. Uh, he was hunting down Christians. Now he's on his way to Damascus to do the same thing. And Saul's focus was entirely on eliminating this dangerous Christian cult. He had all the justification he needed in the letters he carried, and he had all the power he needed in these armed men who were traveling with him. And it is here at this moment that God strikes, right? It's not when Saul was a young man training to become Pharisee. It's not when Saul was witnessing Stephen being stoned to death, right? It is at this moment, at the least likely time for Saul to become a Christian, when Saul's rebellion is at its peak, it is here that God intervenes. And against all the odds, Saul is brought to faith. Now, people, I'm sure there are people in your life that you feel are just beyond saving, right? You look at them and, you know, you just write them off. They're, they're just too far from Christ. Their hearts are too hardened against God. Now, your analysis of them is not wrong, right? These people are probably much further from Christ than you could even imagine, right? Their hearts are like, like rocks against God. But while your analysis of these people is correct, your analysis of God's power is altogether lacking. Our God is mighty to save. The way God evangelizes Saul demonstrates to us that no one is out of God's reach. The hand of God is not too short to save. Instead, his arms are long and outstretched. Even the most hardened anti-Christians are well within his reach. This is the first revelation about our God. He is mighty to save. But this revelation of God's power in evangelism also highlights two mysteries. The first is mystery number one, God's choosing in evangelism. Now, if God is so powerful to save, why does he save only Saul? There were all these men who were with Saul. Why was Saul the only one saved? Now in Acts 22, Saul recounts his experience on the road to Damascus, and he says, now those who were with me, they saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. So Saul and the men, they knew that they were having a spiritual encounter, a supernatural encounter. But for the men who were with Saul, they saw the bright light, but they didn't see Jesus. <clears throat> they heard the sound of Jesus' voice, but they couldn't understand what Jesus was saying. Now, why couldn't they see Jesus? Why couldn't they understand his voice? You know, as we look at this, we're reminded of how Jesus would often speak in parables when he was on earth ministering. And there was a time where his disciples asked Jesus, Jesus, why do you speak in parables? Why don't you just speak plainly? And Jesus replied, to you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them, it has not been given. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing, they do not see, and hearing, they do not hear nor do they understand. Jesus makes it very clear. God has chosen only some to know the secrets of heaven. And this was the case even during Jesus' earthly ministry. Now, why are some chosen and others not? 
What is this criteria that God uses to choose Saul, but to ignore the other men? I mean, if you think about it, they were all in one place, right? So, you know, Sumpian just, you know, one shot, save all of them. Lah. So why, like, you know, why did God choose Saul, but not these other men? Now, some might say it's because God knew how useful Saul would be in advancing the gospel. God knew in advance the impact that Saul would make. But is this really the answer? Is that really the case? Is usefulness the reason why God chooses some, but not the others? We remember the 12 disciples that Jesus handpicked himself. We know some of the disciples, they really made an impact. But how about Bartholomew, or Thaddeus, or Philip, or James the Zealot? Right? Jesus chose these men to be part of his closest 12, but most of us, we can't even recognize their names. Right? It's like, who are these people? Right? Uh, it's like, you know, these guys, they clearly weren't as impactful as someone like Saul, yet they were still chosen. So God doesn't choose to save someone based on their future usefulness. That's not it. Now, if we think that it's because of the person's goodness, then that's even further away. Because when God commanded Ananias to visit Saul, Ananias said, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done. And Saul was known for his wickedness, not his goodness. So why did God choose Saul and not the other men? And even beyond this story, why does God choose some, but not the rest? And the answer to these questions is, we just don't know. Right? God has his reasons, God has his criteria, but it's just beyond us. Right, we are not able to see it, to grasp it, to understand it, and it's a mystery. But thank God that God still chooses. Because while Saul and these men were on a physical road to a physical location, they were also on a spiritual road to eternal destruction. If God had not intervened, all of them, Saul included, would have carried on down that road of sinful rebellion to hell and destruction. But God does intervene, praise God. And Saul is plucked up off of that dreadful drawing. Now people, have you ever wondered, what more will it take for someone you care about to come to faith? Right? You've done everything, you've said everything, you've tried everything possible to bring this person to faith in Jesus, but just that nothing changes. What more will it take? Now there's one thing. And that's God's sovereign choosing. And that's why we pray. We ask our God to bring faith into their hearts. And praise God that still till today, God still chooses. That at the right time, God plucks up those he has chosen off of that road to destruction. So don't lose heart, people. Continue to pray. Continue to lift up your loved one, your friends to the Lord. Continue to ask God to intervene. He is mighty to save. And although it is such a mystery how God chooses, yet the good news is that God still chooses even till today. Now, that's the first mystery that arises when we see God's power in evangelism. Now, we come to mystery number two, God's partnership in evangelism. 
So we read the passage, and there's a man called Ananias who's involved in Saul's conversion. And we look at that, and we wonder why. Right? God clearly has the power to handle Saul's salvation from beginning to end. So why does he bring Ananias into the picture? What does Ananias bring that God needs? And you know, Jesus appears to Ananias in a vision and says to him, rise and go and lay your hands on Saul so that he might regain his sight. And basically, Ananias' role is very simple. Find Saul, lay hands on Saul, convey some words to Saul. And that's it. That's Ananias' involvement in Saul's conversion story. That's the part he has to play. And this, again, makes us scratch our heads, right? Couldn't Jesus just appear again to Saul, just touch him, say whatever he needs to say, and then that's that? Right? Why doesn't Jesus do that? Why go one big circle? Go and uh, appear to Ananias so that Ananias can then go to Saul. Right? What's, what's, what's with all this? Now, the reality is, again, we don't know why God chooses to do things this way. God definitely has the ability, he has the power to do everything himself with no human help whatsoever, but we just don't know why he involves people, involves us in evangelism. It's a mystery. But what we cannot deny is that there's something beautiful in the way Ananias is involved. You know, initially, when God commands Ananias to go, Ananias struggles, right? He points out that Saul is an evil person with a murderous track record against Christians. And what that tells us is that Ananias would have never approached someone like Saul. He would have never done that. But because Jesus, his Savior, is asking him, Ananias obeys. And through that process, Ananias himself is changed. He becomes more like Jesus. Now also imagine how that whole experience must have been like for Saul himself. After encountering Jesus, Saul now knows that he is completely wrong. He now knows that he's actually not a worshiper, but a blasphemer. He now knows that he's not a servant of God, but an enemy of God. Right? He, he, he's not a protector of God's people, but he's actually their murderer and persecutor. And then here comes Ananias, right? a relative, a spiritual family member of every one of those Christians that Saul has murdered. And then Ananias lays his hands on Saul, not to harm him, but to extend God's love, God's forgiveness, God's acceptance towards this wretched and pitiful sinner. Now, I wonder if after that, the scales fell from Saul's eyes because of the tears that were flowing down his cheek. Right? We cannot imagine the beauty of that moment, the healing, the reconciliation, the restoration that Saul was experiencing in his broken state. So why does God partner with Ananias to convert Saul? I have no idea. But is God's decision to partner with him and partner with us, is that a good idea? Absolutely. Why? Because we are all like Ananias. Maybe we are worse, right? We have all kinds of prejudices. We have all kinds of self-absorbed fears. And because of that, we struggle to love. We struggle to forgive. We struggle to accept others. And God's partnership with us in evangelism is most definitely one powerful way through which we overcome these things and become more like Jesus. 
But beyond our own sanctification, God's partnership with us is also such a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful way of doing things. Now, people, what does God require of us in evangelism? Romans 10 tells us, for everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. But how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Now, our role is to go and share. And just as Ananias' touch could cure blindness, right? Just the, the laying of his hands on Saul could fill him with the Holy Spirit. Who knows what could happen as we obey? Because that's all Ananias needed to do, right? He just needed to lay his hands on Saul, say a few words, but the consequences of Ananias' actions are tremendous. Saul's blindness is healed, and the Holy Spirit fills Saul. And all this happened not because Ananias is so powerful, but because God is so powerful. Now, in the same way, people, it is God's role, his part to save. He has the power. And he has made us his partners in this work of evangelism. Our role, our part, is to obey. And who knows what scales may fall from people's eyes and what measure of the Holy Spirit might fill them. God has the power, yet he insists that we partner with him in evangelism. And why that is, is a mystery, but it is surely a good idea. Let's take a look at the final illumination from today's passage. Revelation number two, God's heart for evangelism. Now, I was just thinking if I were God, and thankfully I'm not, uh, if I were God and I wanted to save a proud, murderous punk like Saul, I would have crushed him, right? I would have asserted my might and my glory. I would have appeared before Saul in all my, in all my glory and I would declare to him, Bow before me, Saul, you wretched, miserable insect. But this is not how God reveals himself to Saul. Instead, Jesus appears with the meekest introduction possible. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. You know, when the world thinks about Christian evangelism, they think about, you know, they view it as a power play, right? Because supposedly Christians think they are better than everyone else. We are more upright. We are more holy. We are more correct than everyone else. And, and so, you know, as Christians, we feel that it's our place to go around telling everyone else how sinful, how wrong, how going to hell they are. So when the world thinks of Christian evangelism, the world is actually thinking of Saul's approach, Right, going door to door, forcing their way in, threatening people with hell and coercing them, forcing them to convert to Christianity. But then you have Jesus appearing in all his glory and authority and he's pleading with Saul, Saul, why are you doing this to me? Why are you persecuting me? And there's an unexpected sense of lowliness. Right? There's, this, there's this disarming sense of humanity that comes from our Lord Jesus, and it just simply melts the heart. And we realize that God's heart for evangelism is not for more power, is not for a greater following here on the earth, is not so that he has uh, 
greater influence in politics or in education or in culture. God's heart is for people. God loves his image bearers, even those who barbarically harm and murder his people, even those who mutilated and slaughtered his beloved son. God loves people. And in Christ, God was willing to make himself as lowly as a servant so that sinful men and women could be raised to newness of life. And God did that with Jesus at the cross. God did that through Jesus with Saul. And God does that through Jesus in us whenever we share the gospel with others. And again, we see God's heart for people in his design for saving Saul. He, he reveals to Ananias in verse 15, Go to Saul, for Saul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles, before kings, before the children of Israel. Now, up to this point in the book of Acts, the gospel is not actively being shared with the Gentiles. The Gentiles are people who are not Jewish. The Jewish Christians, they had always targeted other Jews. Now, they went as far as to, uh, to talk, to share with the Samaritans, who were half Jews. They went as far to uh, engage the Hellenistic Jews, who were Greek-speaking Jews. But they hardly ever went as far as intentionally sharing the gospel with the Gentiles the non-Jews. And here in verse 15, the first group of people God desires for his name to be made known to are the Gentiles. Israel is just one small, tiny nation, but the Gentiles make up the rest of the earth. And God's heart, even in saving Saul, was so that the rest of the world would know him. People, God's heart is for the world. It's for the nations. It's for the people groups. It's for every tribe and tongue God's heart is for the lost everywhere. People, God's heart is soft for the world that they might be saved. 1 Timothy 2.4 says, God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. John 3.17 tells us, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus himself declares, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now that is God's heart when it comes to evangelism. He desires salvation everywhere among all peoples. But people, is God's heart shaping your heart? What is evangelism to you? Right? Is it just a daunting task? Is it just a necessary hassle? Is it just a Christian power play you know, that you very much would like to avoid doing? Is God's soft heart for this world shaping your heart? Now, in a couple of weeks' time, we are going to be holding an evangelism equipping cause. And this equipping is going to, be, it's going to require time, right? It's happening over three Sunday afternoons. Uh, this equipping is also going to require money because there's a subsidized rate of $15 for every participant. But this evangelism equipping is also going to require your heart. The whole point of these three weeks of training is so that you not only learn practical means of sharing the gospel, but so that your heart would be transformed. That you would catch God's love for this world. That God's heart would shape your own heart. 
Now, after those three weeks, we'll immediately be moving into a season of active, intentional evangelism. This is during those weeks leading up to Good Friday and to Easter Sunday. That's just a lovely opportunity each year to talk about the gospel more freely. So immediately, we're going to be putting our equipping into action. And I want to encourage you, join us for this equipping. Place your heart on the line. Put yourself in an environment where you're saying to God, Lord, here is my heart. Shape it. Make my heart like yours. Now, as I was saying earlier, this is not a story about Saul. It's a story about God. God's power, God's choosing, God's partnership, God's heart for evangelism. And this story is repeated every time someone turns from their old way of living and puts their faith in Jesus. One of the things I love doing is asking people how they came to faith in Jesus. And some stories that I hear are really dramatic, right? Whereas other stories, they're relatively more calm, more gradual. But the truth is, every one of our salvation stories is dramatic. Everyone is incredible. Everyone is miraculous. Now Saul, as we all know, he would eventually become an apostle and he would eventually author a large section of the New Testament. And in some places, as you read what Saul writes about salvation, it really sounds like Saul is including all of us in his saving experience on the road to Damascus. So in Romans 5, Saul writes, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Now what Saul is doing here is that he's building up the seriousness of our sin against God. And first, God, uh, Saul calls us weak, which doesn't sound so bad. And then he calls us sinners, which is much more serious. And then finally, Saul says, for if while we were enemies, and you know, this part is so strong that maybe you want to respond to Saul and say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Saul, you were the enemy, right? You were the, the, that guy hunting down Christians. You were the one murdering them. Don't lump all of us in with your story. Right? We, we may have been weak, we may have been sinners, but we were most definitely not God's enemies. But the thing is, this isn't Saul's story. This is God's story. And therefore, every one of our stories is caught up in it. Just like Saul, we too were once God's enemies. We too rejected him. We too hated him and his kingdom and his people. Like Saul, we were God's enemies. Yet how does God Treat us. Saul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Saul is saying, just as God shone that light upon me on the road to Damascus, God has also shown the light of Christ upon you. And what that means is that the same love, the same attention, the same gentleness, the same power that God displayed in saving Saul, that is also the same love 
the same attention, the same gentleness, the same power that God has displayed in saving you. People never forget God's heart is for you. You are his redeemed. He saved you. He is your extraordinary evangelist and you are precious in his eyes. But there are so many more out there just like you, just like Saul. And God's heart is for them as well. So would you partner with your God in this mighty work of evangelism? Let's bow our hearts together and let's pray. Let's stand to our feet together. You know, we've heard a lot about evangelism today, particularly about how committed, how involved God is in evangelism. So I just want us to pause here and just allow God, through His Spirit, to bring certain names, certain faces to your minds. As you close your eyes before Him, you turn your heart to Him. You just open up yourself to receive those names, those faces, loved ones, friends, colleagues, classmates, neighbors, in-laws, teachers, your bosses, all kinds of people. Whose faces, whose names is the Lord bringing to your mind? Now would you also respond and begin to just pray for them. Pray for God's power to snatch them off of that road, out of the jaws of eternal destruction. Pray for God's heart of love towards them. That His desire that they be saved would be revealed. That would come to pass. Pray for them. Have mercy, O God. Our family, our dear friends, our neighbors. Lord, have mercy, O God. And now would you also just pray for yourself. Ask God that he would find a faithful and a willing partner in evangelism in you. Oh God, here we are, Lord. Here we are, Lord. Use us. Our Father, we come grateful afresh for how you saved us, how you lifted us from the miry clay and set our feet on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. Lord, we look at your saving work in our lives and we say, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Jesus, we bless you for your sacrifice for us and we say to you, worthy are you, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. 
And we bless you, oh God. This morning, you've revealed afresh your heart to us. You have a soft heart, Lord. A heart of love and mercy. And your heart, oh God, is for the lost. It's for the world around us, the people that surround us all over this broken earth. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would shape our hearts to be like yours, Lord. That we would see your saving power in the lives of our loved ones, in the lives of our friends, in the lives of those around us who are yet to know you. Lord, that we would be your faithful, excellent partners in this work of evangelism. Forgive us, Lord, for making evangelism all about us. But Lord, make us excellent partners, Lord. Lord, would you continue to shine through us, Lord. Shine the light of your Son through us into the hearts of those around. We bless you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now let's lift our voices to praise our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, the King of kings who reigns in glory and grace. Let's sing this together. In the darkness. In the darkness we were waiting without hope, without light till from heaven you came running there was mercy in your eyes to fulfill the law and prophets to a virgin came the word from the throne of endless glory to a cradle in the dark sing together praise the father praise the father praise the son Praise the Spirit, three in one, God of glory, majesty, praise forever to the King of kings. To reveal the kingdom coming. To reveal the kingdom coming. To reconcile the lost. To redeem the whole creation. The whole creation. You did not despise the cross. For even in your suffering, you saw to the other side. Knowing this was our salvation. Jesus for our sakes, you died. God has lifted up. Praise the Father. Praise the Son. Praise the Spirit.
bless you, O oh God. We praise you in all of your sufficiency, in all of your trinity, in all of your glory. We exalt you, Lord. Now, people, would you open up your hearts and your hands to receive the blessing of the benediction? People, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. Be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen and amen. Why don't we raise an applause to the Lord? What a God we have. Now we've come to the end of our service. Uh, for those of Thank you for listening to this sermon podcast. You can find more of our sermons online on our website at www.agape.org.sg